welcome to the SRA podcast. I'm Faye, and I'm here today with P.B. Gomez, the founder of the Latino Rifle Association. And also here with us today is my fiance and editor, Ed, who immigrated from Mexico as a child and hopefully can bring some of his own perspectives uh, to what it's like to be a Latino gun owner in America these days. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on the podcast. I definitely look forward to being on this side <laughs> of the, uh, the microphone, so to speak. Definitely. So, sure. So, PB, could you go ahead and talk a bit about what the Latino Rifle Association is and sort of what its overarching goal and purpose is? Right. So we are sort of a gathering place for Latino gun owners. But more than that, we're about education and educating the uh, Latino community about self-defense and about firearms. If you look at the statistics, the Latino community is one of the, you know, they have some of the lowest uh, percentages of gun owners in the United States, but we're one of the most vulnerable communities. You know, we're frequently uh, subject to hate crimes and just a uh, very low on the white dominant capitalist hierarchy in this country. And I feel like it was about time that there was an organization that not only could Latino gun owners come out and express themselves and, you know, feel empowered, but also that Latinos who are completely inexperienced with firearms could come uh, meet people who from a similar cultural perspective, people who have perhaps less toxic political views and learn about firearms and how to defend themselves. Excellent. So uh, could you talk a little bit about the political views of the uh, organization? Is is the, is it explicitly a left-wing group or are you more big tent? Uh, we're definitely left aligned. I've, I've said that. That's in our FRQ. We're left aligned. We're progressive. You know, we are anti-racist, anti-fascist, anti-oppression, and we're an intersectional organization. You know, we're not just about empowering and defending the Latino community. We're about defending all racial minorities and sexual identity minorities and gender minorities and just working class interests. So while I would say that you don't have to be a leftist or liberal or socialist to join, definitely this group's values are definitely one that exists on the left. Excellent. So um, what are your goals as far as organization? Are you planning for the LRA to be more of a online education and community sort of organization? Or are you looking at having um, official instructors in the long term or uh, developing along those sort of lines the way the SRA has? Definitely, we don't want to stay online forever. And we've already begun doing in-person activities. Uh, the ultimate goal would be to have... So obviously, that's a bit difficult with COVID-19. Yes, it on. is. We, we were make sure that we took precautions at the range. Everyone wore a mask and we sanitized our guns afterwards. Um but the ultimate goal for the LRA is to have a club in most major cities and regions where Latino gun owners can connect and share their knowledge and just socialize. But also, as I said, where Latinos who are completely unfamiliar with firearms can go and learn from these people. So we'll definitely have, you know, just fun range days, but we're definitely also going to have educational days. And then we'd like to do community outreach and um, community service. We'd also like to do, you know, advocacy for gun rights in the future, but that goal will be secondary because first and foremost, this is a community project about empowerment and education. Fantastic. So I guess what was sort of the um, inspiration or sort of guiding philosophy that led you to want to start this organization? So when I personally got into firearms, it didn't have too much of a political slint to it. When I bought my first firearm, I had gone shooting guns three times in my life. 
I had shot a shotgun for skeet shooting. I went to Vegas, a machine gun range, and I shot a Glock with my dad at the range that he rented. When I bought my own gun, it was because California was passing a law that said you had to be 21 to own any gun, and so I figured might as well do it now before I have to wait another two and a half years. But what sort of got me thinking about the necessity of a group like this was unfortunately the El Paso Walmart shooting and then also the Gilor Garlic Festival shooting, where in both instances you had avowed white nationalists who had gone to these places. The El Paso shooter said he wanted to murder Mexican immigrants because he was tired of them ruining his beloved Texas. And the Gilor Garlic Festival shooting, uh, in his manifesto, we talked about hordes of mestizos in the California Valley. And that's what got me thinking about like this sort of group is something that might be necessary. And then the catalyst that made me think this year, like, all right, this is the year I have to do it, was watching these uh, far-right militias storm the Michigan State House. I saw that news story, and then I decided, like, all right, I'm going to register a domain, I'm going to get a Twitter, I'm going to get an Instagram, like, I'm going to start organizing this before it's too late. Definitely. And it is incumbent on us as members of minorities to organize things like this for our own defense. You know, definitely similar motivations behind my decision to help get the SRA started. So yeah, I think it's definitely important to arm for our collective defense when we have people like this in the country committing the crimes that they do, especially now that we've seen that the police are willing to brutalize people en masse uh, just for protesting for Black lives. I imagine the response would be similar if there was an immigrants' rights movement starting at this point. So, And then also I'd like to say from a national discourse perspective, just the presence of a group of Latinos on the national stage saying we're armed, we're unafraid, and you know we're going to exercise our constitutional rights the same as everybody else in this country, I think is a powerful message to send. Absolutely. Well, there's only so much that I can say about this topic uh, as a white woman. So I think maybe some discussion of the more community aspects of firearms ownership. You could probably have a better discussion with Ed as a Latino who has recently gotten into firearms. So I'll turn it over to you too. Well, uh, I, I spoke about this on the first episode of season two of the podcast uh, where I was the interviewee. And I, I definitely feel like my journey, so to speak, into um, becoming a gun owner was rather interesting. Uh, as I mentioned then, the Latino community tends to have a very, I used to think paranoid, but now I think it's completely justified, fear of authority in general. And from my perspective, a lot of the times, a lot of the arguments that people from my either my parents or their friends or our community would raise when I was saying like, hey, I'm getting a gun. It would be entirely based on, doesn't that make you a target for the cops? <laughs> and I do feel like based on what I have heard from some of our um, African-American comrades that we have, we share a relatively similar barrier of entry into gun culture that they do in the sense that the mere act of us exercising our Second Amendment rights would essentially put a target or at the very least make it even easier for police to do any sort of violence against us. I, I agree. And then I also think a lot of it for people who are from Mexico or from Latin America or like first generation is that there really isn't a civilian gun ownership culture. When you see guns in the hands of people, it's police or it's criminal elements or it's military, none of which are particularly friendly to the working class people of those countries. 
recently I bought a uh, Bursar Firestorm, which is an Argentinian gun. And I was reading about it, and I read that they're extremely popular uh, throughout Latin America because 380 Auto is usually the largest caliber that any civilian is allowed to own. So that kind of gives you perspective that in Latin American countries, a 380 Auto pistol is like a Desert Eagle to us. I will say, though, that my perspective is probably a lot different than yours, Ed, because I'm third generation Mexican-American. I'm mixed race. I'm white passing. So I definitely think like for me, it wasn't so much an issue of when I bought my gun, I didn't have to worry about those sort of things. But I know a lot of people do, and they're very paranoid about how do I balance the need for self-defense with you know being afraid of being a target, being an armed minority. But I think that's one of the things that the Latino Rifle Association can do is sort of you know, along with other organizations, is normalized gun ownership for racial minorities, just as it was normalized for uh, white men in this country. Right. I, I don't want to repeat myself too much, because uh, again, <laughs> I was already kind of interviewed for it. But um, I don't believe that there's uh, too much of a change between the what the Latin American citizens, like uh, you know, Mexican citizens, or uh, I actually can't speak for any citizens of any other countries in Latin America. But at the very least from Mexico, there is not that much difference between what you mentioned, that ethos of uh, like, you know, the fear of owning guns and or specifically gun culture being pretty much something that only law enforcement has rather than it being civilian gun owners. For the most part, the only exposure I had to firearms back when I was in Mexico was through one of my tios who used to be uh, in the military. And that side of the family is super conservative. I re just recently learned that one of my cousins married a candidate for the PRI, PRI or PRI. They're like essentially the, the Mexican version of the GOP. And <laughs> I found it kind of funny that um, when I posted on Instagram, like the, f the first time at the gun range, they were the only ones that commented positively. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and I'm I I've been dreading to think about like what would happen if I suddenly start posting like quotes from Ricardo Flores Magón and <laughs> 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 just like you're just talking uh, positively about the Zapatistas and just I'm wondering what the reaction would be. Oh man, I I will I don't care who has anything to say. I love the Zapatistas army. Those guys are incredible. I am uh, curious what the sort of popular perception both among like, you know, Mexican Americans, people have been in the, who have lived in the United States for a long time versus people who lived in Mexico recently who are immigrants. I wonder what the sort of perceptions of the EZLN and of like the Alta Defensas in Mexico and these other groups is in general, although I imagine it depends a lot on one's politics. Yeah, that, that would have to be a question we'd have to ask somebody else. Um, I have been, I've been living in the United States for 20 years at this point. So I, my only exposure to the Zapatista, the ZLN before I moved here was fear-mongering from news organizations um, to the point where like the last time I traveled through that area essentially we took a road trip to Cancun with my parents and as a little kid I was just scared like afraid that we were gonna get gunned down when reality is they're not <laughs> you know Zapatistas would never do like just against random people no and I'll say that you know among Mexican Americans I know here most have never heard of the Zapatistas or these other uh, indigenous or working class militias. The only people who, when I've mentioned them, who also knew about them were either people who were leftists or people who were into guns. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think it's a deliberate sort of uh, propaganda by the Mexican government to keep them either hidden or demonized. But I'm not, you know, 
I'm third generation. I have almost no knowledge of the the politics, you know, the in, the uh, inner politics of Mexico at the moment. Yeah. Um I have been kind of removed from that myself. So, it's hard for me to like make a a broad even a broad stroke generalization of what it is like. I will say that when I bought my gun, most of the members of my dad's generation were fairly on board with it. Um, but there were a lot of, you know, a lot of military veterans among my dad's brothers. But I will say for people who are closer to my age, they were sort of skeptical, especially because I bought a rifle, you know, which is odd that people freak out more about rifles than they do about pistols. Like that just seems so backwards to me. Like if you thought someone was going to do something insidious, you thought they'd get a handgun. But anyway, and also just the area I grew up, I grew up in central California, fairly liberal uh, racially diverse democrat dominated area so i think i think the media demonization of guns and gun ownership has sort of had its effect on a lot of minority communities what do you think about that uh it's it definitely seems targeted mostly towards us us my us being minority communities um but i do feel like in general it's just uh part of the neoliberal illusion essentially the idea being that if the system's working and everyone has an opportunity to rise up, pull themselves up by the bootstraps and, be, you know, the American dream, if it is working, there is no need for you to be armed. But that's the problem is that it's it's an illusion, right? Like it's not actually real. I, in my experience, the argument that a lot of liberals will use in terms of like gun control of, it's, of okay, I bought a rifle. Well, why do you need a rifle? Why... I am, Why get the scary gun that has uh, a large capacity magazine? I'm so versus. I would say I'm so sick. Whenever anyone says, "Why do you need X gun?" I just immediately I'm just like, "Oh, just can't. I don't want to deal with you right now." <laughs> um, I mean, if anything, uh, I think the current goings on and well, most of the world is <laughs> starting to to show like, yeah, this is this is why we need guns and. I going going a little bit into that and a bit of a tangent. I'm actually kind of glad that's like at the very least on the side of the protest, no one has decided to start firing. But we have seen from all the videos going on that like the protesters who show up in states that have uh, open carry laws, they don't get harassed. Exactly. Or at least not as much. I was going to say, you said that no one no one's got shot. There actually was members of a far right militia called the New Mexico Civil Guard shot uh, a protester who was trying to tear down i can't remember exactly what the statue was of i think a conquistador or a missionary mm. so yeah like I, I i did hear about that but i i specifically meant black Lives matter protesters not oh, shooting at saying. anybody instead yeah. of yeah uh, well, why would they that's not what they're there for. right We're, they're not you know what i mean they're not there for insidious purposes they're there because they understand that they own guns as a deterrent whereas these far-right militias own guns to intimidate and because you know to enforce hopefully you know in their minds enforce the status quo we have seen as well that some of these right-wing types are beginning to use their firearms offensively um there have now been at least two cases in the chaz or chop whichever nomenclature is correct at the moment of someone driving through with in a black suv and mag dumping out the window. Currently, two people have died. I know the John Brown Gun Club is out there doing security. I hope that they have a response to this, because otherwise that's going to be make it very easy for the police to justify making their way back in. 
yeah, that whole situation is uh, very interesting. I remember watching a, a live stream of uh, an armed protester, a uh, young black man, and uh, he was constantly just every five minutes, I felt like there was just a white liberal going up to him being like, hey, man, you really shouldn't have that. Or like, oh, why do you have why do you need a big old rifle like that? He had like a Galil or an AK. And it was just so infuriating to be like, how have you watched what's been going on the past couple of weeks and still question why he should have that rifle? I mean, I'll just say that I think a lot of people, because I went to the gun shop recently and it was a lot of people of color who were buying guns for the first time, which is, I'm encouraged to see that people are starting to take their own defense and the defense of their communities and their families seriously. But um, it weighs heavy on you that so many people are starting to live in fear and be fearful of our, the state of our country. Right. I am privileged enough to have come to this country with documents. So I I have not suffered as uh, some of my undocumented brothers and sisters have. So I I don't know if there's any particular like data that either of you have run into. Um, I should probably research it, but it's specifically, I'm guessing the Second Amendment does not extend to, to non-citizens. Wait, no, of course it doesn't, at least not in California. That's part of the background check. Yeah, so when you fill out your form 4473, you have to either be a citizen or a legally documented resident alien. I don't recall off the top of my head because it's not affected me and I haven't had the question posed to me yet, but um, whether a green card qualifies you. But I know that there are much more stringent requirements and that if you are undocumented, that there is no there is no legal gun ownership. Yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, speaking for the Latino Rifle Association, because this is definitely something that we're going to be asked a lot. Non-citizens are 100 percent welcome to attend our meetings, to observe, to hear about our advice online. But, you know, we are a lawful organization. You know, we, we're eventually going to incorporate as a similar organization to the SRA. So we can't condone providing firearms to people who are prohibited from possessing them. But I will say without a doubt that we're still committed to protecting and advocating for all the members of our community. You know, we don't care about your legal status. I was just going to say that like, basically, I think we were going to share the same sentiment. It's like those people are some of the ones that are most marginalized and therefore are the ones who could actually would need a firearm for self-defense even more than say me and yet they're the ones whose right in that sense has been denied absolutely and i do want to comment that the prohibition on non-citizens owning firearms or undocumented residents owning firearms i do think that that ties into the racial history of gun control in the united states absolutely well i suppose that the uh Modern formalization of immigration as uh, of immigration status mostly occurred during the 1920s and 30s, with revisions in the 50s and 60s. And the intent of immigration laws has always had a racial intent to keep America white, more or less, which can be seen in the more restrictive quotas on countries which are majority people of color throughout. Uh, much of American history. And when that became unfashionable, when that was seen as too racist, it transitioned to requiring a, you know, more advanced education, large sums of money, you know, some artistic or athletic uh, sponsorship, essentially, which, again, is prejudiced towards allowing white people to immigrate uh, legally. And so you have this situation where large sectors of our economy and agriculture and manufacturing are reliant on largely Mexican and Central American immigrant labor. But then because of their undocumented status, 
They're uh, restricted from firearms ownership. They're forced to live in poverty, often in proximity to gangs and drug dealing. Members of those communities may end up caught up in law enforcement sweeps against those. Uh, Even if you're like a legal citizen, if you have family that are undocumented, if you have family in a gang, you can get caught up and lose your gun rights that way. And so you have this system that is, you know, although it doesn't say on the label, this is you know, gun control with racist intent. It is that that sort of continuation of the racist history of gun control, you know, just as over-criminalization and over-policing of Black communities and neighborhoods leads to an overall restriction on Black men's rights to gun ownership. Likewise, undocumented immigration and the restrictions on firearms that entails has the same effect on the Latino community. Yeah, And then also just in a lot of states that have licensing systems, that's just a huge deterrent for communities that are rightfully skeptical of law enforcement. The, the idea that you have to engage with the sheriff's department or the police department in order to purchase a firearm can be extraordinarily intimidating. In North Carolina, which we think of as a very, you know, as a red state that's very gun friendly, you still to this day have to get permission from local law enforcement to own a pistol for every pistol that you own. And that's very clearly traceable to Jim Crow era population control and segregation against the black community. It's interesting that you you brought up the idea of uh, working class immigrants to the United States. There was an article I read for college. I just recently graduated, but this article I used several times for several essays by uh, Edward Olivos and Geraldo Sandoval about how Latinos in this country sort of constitute a reserve army of labor that the the purpose of extraordinarily poor migrant workers in this country is to serve as the the lowest of the low in this hierarchy and in order to keep you know you have to do what you can to make sure that they do not become politically organized so that they can stay that and you know they talked about the uh, the ice raids on places like Iowa, where Latino communities had come from very far away and had formed this this vibrant community and culture that was destroyed because of racial prejudice and because, you know, perhaps they weren't as useful to the capitalists in that area as they originally had been. And so they needed to be uh, dispersed in some way. I don't know that for sure, but it seems completely arbitrary what workplaces get targeted by ICE and what places don't. There have been uh, cases where there was one recently, I don't recall the state, but there have been several cases where undocumented immigrants or, you know, where the workforce is mixed, documented and undocumented immigrants have attempted to unionize or engage in organized labor actions. And when that happens, the owners of the business invite ICE in to perform a sweep. Um, to remove agitators and to intimidate and threaten the workforce and remove anyone who is, you know, too large of a threat. So it is definitely, you know, immigration law is used as as a tool to keep the Latino community repressed. You know, obviously, there is this conservative sort of political line about, oh, they're taking our jobs, you know, oh, they're, they're you know, Sorry, I don't. I can't do the Alex Jones voice right now. But you know, <laughs> this this sort of narrative about how you know Latino people are taking white people's jobs—that's not a threat posed by Latino people. That's a threat created by the capitalist class who are using Latino people as leverage to keep white workers in line and to keep them from feeling that their labor is valuable. And the harsher and Republicans use that sort of anti-immigrant sentiment to 
rather than focusing on, on improving the economic conditions that it would eliminate the need for that sort of low-paid labor. Instead, they use it to push harsh, harsher immigration laws, which can then be used to further oppress the Latino community and keep their wages even lower. So it's it's really insidious. I've always said that, you know, when you think of establishment Democrats, people who are worth millions of dollars talking about standing with undocumented immigrants, I'm always like, do you think they're doing that out of the goodness of their heart? Or do you think it has, well, political motivations because it appeals to certain sensibilities, but also economic motives because, you know, Democrats have big business connections too. Um, and this this issue is, is, is interesting because within the Chicano community, Cesar Chavez, a champion for working class rights, but also someone who perhaps out of necessity, but perhaps not, was hostile to illegal immigrants acting as strike breakers. So like within our own community, this is an issue that is contentious and not properly understood by a lot of people, maybe because of propaganda or just because they're too focused on their own survival, sort of, so to speak. So this going back to a, something you brought up earlier, Faye, uh, regarding Latino communities being close to gang violence, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that that gang violence is not inherent whatsoever in like Latino culture or Latino community, unlike what Fox News would have you believe, but rather that it is a direct result of Latino communities being disenfranchised. Absolutely. And people forget MS-13, which is Donald Trump's biggest boogeyman, was not a Salvadorian gang. It was a Salvadorian immigrant gang established in Los Angeles. Right. So, and going back to what we were just talking about regarding um, the capitalist system using us immigrants in order to get cheap labor, we have to look at it in terms of a global problem. I came here because my parents wanted to have better opportunity, economical opportunity, and give us a better life. The whole reason why that was not as likely or possible in Mexico is specifically because of centuries of colonialist economic pressure from the United States. You can look back on this to early in the 1900s, where like the time when Magón um, was writing against Porfirio Díaz, and it's the exact same problem that was happening then. It was the dictator of Mexico back then, Porfirio Diaz, that I just mentioned, was selling out Mexican natural resources and essentially labor to foreign companies. So all the inherent value in the lands of Mexico was going somewhere else to enrich somebody else. And it's that problem has been going on ever since then, essentially, and probably longer than that. So I guess what I'm what I'm trying to get here is that this is this is like a problem inherent in the system. It comes from like directly from United States economic policy. Like it doesn't get talked about very much on the news. But one of the reasons why there is so much immigration from Mexico to the United States, um, or especially why there was uh, during the late 90s and the 2000s, one of the main reasons is that NAFTA forced Mexico to adopt certain economic reforms, which eliminated the viability of, you know, traditional subsistence farming in Mexico. Essentially, it made the traditional corn farming and chicken raising industries in Mexico uh, to collapse because instead Mexico was importing 
subsidized corn from the United States at cheaper than local farmers could produce it. And that then basically forced those farmers to sell their land either to wealthy Mexican corporations or to foreign investors. And then those workers then deprived of their land were basically, I guess the Marxist term would be proletarianized, if you want to check that off on your score sheet, uh, and then basically forced them to seek out either manufacturing jobs or to come to the United States to do agricultural work for uh, below minimum wage here. So it that's a deliberate economic policy. Like that wasn't something that came out of left field. That is something that the United States government and the complicit governments of Mexico agreed upon in order to forcibly change the economic conditions of the Mexican working class. That article that I mentioned earlier def- talks about that a lot. And this is a global phenomenon. Like Countries in the global south, in Africa, in Southeast Asia, in Latin America, just cannot compete with the farmers of the United States who are so heavily subsidized. And I don't want to blame family-owned farms because they're not the ones doing this. These are massive corporate farms that are receiving over 30% subsidies from the United States. Um, And if you guys are interested, the article I was referring to about uh, Latinos constituting a reserve army of labor is called uh, Latina slash Latino Identities, the Racialization of Work and the Global Reserve Army of Labor, Becoming Latino in Postville, Iowa. A uh, very good article. I recommend that if you have access to an academic library, that you take a look at that article. We'll try to include a link in the episode description. Um, we seem to be getting a little bit. I was about to say we are a little off topic. We should probably pivot back to gun yeah. rights, but this was interesting. Yeah. So I guess the sort of argument is that there are all these sorts of economic and material reasons why you know Latino people are especially vulnerable to violence, but also unable to access firearms as readily as white people. So I guess my question is, what sort of changes, um, either culturally or politically, do you think that you would advocate for, and that you hope the LRA might advocate for, to sort of change this, uh, to change these conditions in the United States? Well, just just in the immediate future, more than just being about guns, I would like the LRA to be a resource for other forms of self-defense such as tasers and pepper spray, stuff that people who are maybe undocumented could potentially own in some states. But the political advocacy, we're far from that. We're, we're such a new group. But I would absolutely, in the future, think about ways in which we could advocate for undocumented people to feel more secure in this country. And I will say that this goes in hand in hand with uh, something that's topical, community policing. If We had community safety officers and social workers who were members of the Latino community, documented or otherwise, who were keeping people safe. Perhaps uh, Latino communities, undocumented Latino communities in this country wouldn't feel so jeopardized. You know, there's a lot of intersectionality to this issue, as we've discovered. So what about you, Ed? Are you thinking about joining the LRA? And if so, what would you most be looking forward to? maybe start a chapter down here in LA? Well, that, that's a leading question if I ever heard one. But yeah, uh, so I, I have actually been like following you, following you guys on Twitter, um, really thinking about it. I hadn't realized that you were a member of the SRA as well. Um, Just recently joined. I have to admit, your logo, I actually really like. Not too often that you see depictions of the Mecca Whittle just out and about. And that's actually something that I've been kind of meaning to 
getting in touch with you guys. I might get that tattooed someday, to be honest with you. Maybe not the full logo, but just the uh, the War Club and the AK-47. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're interested in organizing with us, the only in-person group we have so far is in Sacramento, because uh, we're very young. Like, this, this project is less than a few months old. I started it at the end of April. But joining our Discord, uh, which you could find links to on all of our social media, joining our subreddit, r slash Latino RA. And then pretty soon we're going to be uh, launching our, our website with the forums. And there will be a section of the forums for organizing unofficial range days and meetups. And soon we'll devise a way that LRA members in a certain area can apply to be official clubs. That's something that we're looking forward to in the near future. Because um, a lot of people ask me like, oh, do you have a do you have a club in this area, a club in this area? I said, you know, we're so new. This is a community project. Like at the end of the day, I'm basically just a social media manager and an amateur firearms instructor. This is about building a community that is self-sufficient and is actually tied to local communities that have members of local communities, you know, doing the work, advocating, reaching out. I've always said, I don't want this to be the NRA for brown people. You know what I mean? This is a community project. This is not some big corporate lobbyist. This is not some token-esque advocacy group. Right. So if um, if any of our Latino listeners are interested in joining, so aside from contacting you via Twitter, uh, is there any other like sort of process that they'd have to go through in order to... Uh, right now, to, to, to join our Discord server, you have to be vetted. You have to introduce yourself, explain where you heard about us, where you're from, why you want to join. Um, that typically keeps away most trolls, I've noticed. Um, it's not foolproof. Uh, in the future, once we have a formal membership process, which I would, uh, hoping that we could do maybe within the next few months, but it's, it's difficult, we'll have ways to vet out members. And I think it's different because with the Socialist Rifle Association, you have something that is people associate socialists with guns, like, oh, it must be dangerous. Well, that's not at all the case. So this group might not to do as much vetting, but definitely I think the local club leadership will have guidelines for who do you accept, who do you keep out, who do you, uh, how do you conduct interviews, how do you conduct meetings, stuff like that. And I think our forums online will not have a vetting process because we want people who are Latino and gun curious to feel free to ask questions without paying a fee or going through an interview process. But definitely think the in-person range groups will have a little bit more stringent vetting. Excellent. So if people wanted to find out more about the LRA, could you share with us your website and your Twitter handle and Insta? Right. So our Twitter is at LatinoRifle.org. That's the best place to keep up for news updates and just sort of get a feel for what, uh, what we advocate for. Uh, our Instagram is at Latino Rifle Association. Same thing. Uh, we post pictures of, uh, we will be posting pictures of range days here. Our subreddit is r slash Latino RA. That's a good place to go if you want to ask questions or see, you know, maybe organize a range group. There are links to our Discord on all of those platforms. So if you're interested, you could join from there. There's a small vetting process. So just, you know, you won't be able to access any of the channels right away, but just give it less than a day and you'll, you'll have access. Um, and soon we'll be launching our website at www.latinoriflassociation.org. And that will contain an FAQ, 
a donation page, an About Us page, and our forums. And if you'd like to support us financially, you can purchase our merchandise, including stickers and merchandise with our logo at Redbubble. Our shop page is just LRA-Official. You can follow my personal Twitter account, at MestizoLeftist. And before we go, I'd like to shout out the LRA's first and currently only sponsor, uh, Guerrilla Tactical, Guerrilla as in Guerrilla Warfighter. They contacted me and said they want to support our mission, um, arming and empowering marginalized communities. And so they offered our members a discount, and I really appreciate them. And they're definitely a company worth supporting. So you can find them on Instagram, uh, Guerrilla Tactical, once again, Guerrilla as in Guerrilla Warfighter, and if you need a trauma kit or a pistol or magazine Kydex holder, they're definitely the people you should go to. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on with us today. It sounds like you've got the start of a really good organization here, and I hope people who are interested will check it out. Uh, do you have any words you'd like to leave us with? Just that I have so much respect for you, Fay, and you know the work you've done with the Socialist Rifle Association. Uh, you guys were a big inspiration for the formation of this group and i hope we are as successful i hope our groups work together uh thank you for giving me this platform today i really appreciate that and um yeah it's it's been a pleasure uh i'm flattered but thank you uh and thank you again for coming on uh solidarity solidarity solidarity, solidarity.